chapter 18. We're going to walk through it together. It'll be really handy uh, to have a Bible open in front of you uh, as we do that. And uh, as we're making our way there, let me uh, just lead us in another prayer before we consider this passage together. Lord, we pray as the Apostle Paul did in Ephesians 1. We pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance in us, your holy people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you about uh, Tatini to start with. Tatini is a lady who is completely blind. She appeared a few years ago in the BBC documentary, Human Planet. They filmed her taking some very uncertain steps, uh, as you can see in the picture, along some very rocky and precarious Himalayan mountain paths in Nepal with nothing but this stick uh, to aid her. She talks with the film crew in the little segment about her inability to see. Though her eyes are clouded over, as she talks, she still sheds tears. There's nothing that she can do. Uh, there's no one that she can go to. Her village is so remote, there are no doctors, there are certainly no hospitals for miles and miles. Hopeless, she sobs. The documentary then cuts from Tatini's tears to a man hiking up a mountainside, borrowing someone's bedroom, pulling a makeshift operating theater out of his backpack. Uh, he's a doctor from Kathmandu staying in a village near Tatini's. And he sends out word. Anyone with cloudy eyes can come and be treated for free. Which is good news, except for the fact that Tatini faced an impossible problem. She just couldn't get to him. And such, friends, is everyone's predicament before a holy God. People who don't believe in God are described in the Bible in ways, spiritually speaking, like Tatini. They're unable or unwilling to see. They're blind, in other words. Unable or unwilling to perceive the truth of the gospel and unable to resolve their own blindness. The Bible actually presents three contributing factors to blindness. For Tatini, it was... Uh, uh, solar radiation actually from living so high up. But what, is, what is it when it comes to sin? Uh, to our blindness? Well, one, it's sin. I've given it away. Ezekiel 12, 2 says that people who rebel against God have eyes that cannot see. So when you enjoy walking in darkness against the will of God or in a way that is different to the will of God, then you see no need for light. And your eyes, and the Bible says your heart, become darkened. The second contributing factor to a person's blindness is Satan himself, the devil. 2 Corinthians 4 says that he is the God of this age. He has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. In other words, the, the thing that reveals the truth of the gospel to us. The third contributing factor to a person's spiritual blindness, though, is God himself. Romans 1, 18 to 20 tells us that God's present and active judgment on people who suppress the truth about him and choose wickedness is to, well, for them to be blind and to be left in that state. 
And because of those three contributing factors, because of our own spiritual blindness, we, like Tatini, face an impossible problem. And we need, actually, the kind of help that she got. Someone not only came to help her see, the doctor from Kathmandu, someone actually came and got her and carried her to him. Literally, a 65-year-old Tatini got about a nine-mile piggyback to the one who would open her eyes. The documentary records both the operation, but jumps very quickly, thankfully, to the, the time when the bandages are removed from her eyes. What can you see? The doctor asks. In a sense of marvel, she just says, I can see your nose. It wasn't even that big. And then in a moment of just sweet cinematography, she just reaches out and she touches it. It's beautiful. I see everything now, she says. And friends, what I want us to understand that though blindness is our inherent sinful spiritual condition, the Lord himself does for us what he does, what, what that doctor did for Titini, carries us to himself, opens our eyes by granting faith, but the question I want us to consider tonight is what does he want us to see? Whether we're believers here and we need refreshed in our faith or not yet believers, what does he want us to see? Well, two things from this passage, the necessity of his death and resurrection and the power that he has to open blind eyes. Just those two things. And if you are joining us tonight and you've not been with us as we've walked week by week through the Gospel of Luke, maybe for some of the rooted kids, let me just give you a quick recap. We join the story here in Luke 18, just about, probably about eight or nine days, certainly less than two weeks from the cross. And there, we've been in a section from chapter 17, verse 20, through to 1927. It's, it's a section, really, that is all about the kingdom of God and who could enter it. So far, Jesus has helped us to, to see people who can't enter it. He's already sent away a religious man who relied on keeping the rules. He sent away a rich man who relied on his wealth. He sent away a self-righteous man who relied on being just better than others. In fact, Jesus has said the only ones who can enter in are people who receive the kingdom like a little child, that is, with faith and trust, and people whose faith was evident in their praying. So let's jump into the text and look at those two points that I just mentioned. First of all, number one, Jesus' death and resurrection is necessary. Okay, this is a simple fact, uh, uh, open to see in verses 31 to 34. In verses 31 to 33, first of all, Jesus, then, Jesus takes his 12 aside and again explains what will happen in Jerusalem. I say again because in chapter 9, verse 21 and 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So what Jesus says to them in verses uh, 31 and 32 shouldn't be news to them. He's all, they've already been told this stuff before. But the second reason why it shouldn't be uh, news to them is because it's foretold in Scripture. Jesus says here, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets 
about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to Gentiles. They will mock, insult, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. Now, prophets, in verse 31, is just one of the major sections of the Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus read. Uh, the Old Testament was commonly divided into three, the law, the prophets, the writings. Often it was just summarized into two, the law and the prophets. Uh, but here Jesus has only the prophets in mind, the books that record the messages that God spoke. In, in that day and age, hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, but these words of the prophets not only spoke to the people back then, they spoke to those who would come after them of a future, uh, a coming day and age, namely when God's Messiah, which means God's promised anointed king, would come. Now, what did the prophets say? Well, we could spend all night looking at passages from the, the prophets that point forward to the Lord Jesus. Indeed, the whole scripture testifies about him. But let me just spotlight too, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 tells us about this one called a son of man who is very clearly a human being but with divine attributes and is recognized as having and being given divine authority. He is sovereign. So he's like a God man, okay? Now this is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself in the gospel accounts. By taking this designation, he's basically saying the prophecy that was uttered through Daniel hundreds and hundreds of years before I was even born into this world, they're written about me. Jesus says, I'm the son of man. In other words, the one with sovereign power and authority. The second passage is Isaiah 53, uh, the passage Will read to us earlier. Isaiah 53 is quite well known to most of us who come here regularly, but it's a passage about God's servant. But Isaiah isn't describing any old servant. The servant in the book of Isaiah is clearly the Messiah. Okay, and Isaiah says this servant's suffering is actually the thing that's going to help people see and understand the message that the Lord, God himself, wants the whole world to hear and understand. Okay? Uh, he's, a, that he's a man, but like, like any other man, but he suffers and dies, but not in a way that any other man does. The sufferings that he goes through are ours. The punishment in particular he undergoes is not his, it's ours. Uh, he didn't deserve what he got in terms of his punishment and his death. And we didn't deserve what we got as a result of him going through that death. That is the salvation that we know and enjoy. Yet Isaiah says all of this, the, the, the brutality of his execution, the fact that he will rise again three days later, the, the fruits of that and the blessings for his people who will come along throughout the ages from the nations, this is all God's will. This is all God's plan. To make him, as Isaiah 53.10 says, an offering for sin as he himself, the servant, Jesus, would make intercession for transgressors and he would, of course, be glorified by being raised to life, he would see the light of life and be satisfied. 
Jesus is saying in Luke 18, those few verses that we looked at, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Jesus said what the prophets foretold. It's going to happen soon. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over, beaten, mocked, scorned, and killed. And all four gospel accounts record the events and the details that Jesus predicted here briefly take place. We'll get to that in a few weeks' time. And please make no mistake, Jesus is no clairvoyant. He's not even a, a very good political analyst, you know, with his finger on the cultural pulse of the day. He is the sovereign son of man working out God's plan. He's the servant God sent to do God's will, which tells us the cross that he went to and died on was by no means a mistake. It was not a, wow, that was a surprise. I didn't see that one coming. He saw it coming before he even came. It was God's eternal plan that in his wisdom, his love and his goodness, his mercy and his grace would be manifest supremely through this Jesus' death. So do you see the implications of these verses, friends? Two things I think we see. One, they should at least give us an awful lot of confidence in the Bible that we read. Even as we read the Old Testament, Jesus here underscores the reliability of the Old Testament. Jesus was certain of its fulfillment because it was and is the Word of God. All divinely inspired prophecy achieves its purpose, as Isaiah 55 tells us, proving its reliability, even as these predictions are worked out. The Bible is true, friends, so believe it. The Bible is all about Jesus and his salvation and how we benefit from that through faith. So come to him. Two, we should marvel at the plan of God to save sinners like us. Never let it become familiar, friends, singing songs like we've just sung or considering words like we're considering here. It's too easy. Too easy to be distracted from the fact that the author of life entered the story to save his dying people. And that he suffered terribly and did so in our place in order to open our eyes to eternal life. Don't you see? He had to suffer and rise so that we could be forgiven and receive that life. Well, the disciples, sadly, didn't see, did they? Look with me, verse 34. The disciples here are still in the dark. They did not, verse 34, understand any of this. Now, you have to ask, why is that? Well, how come the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying? This is, they've been with him for three years. In fact, they are two weeks from graduation. The common view in Israel, of course, was that the Messiah would oust the Romans. So they maybe had a kind of political or a, a military figure in mind some, in some way that the salvation that they're going to experience is going to be getting rid of the Romans and establishing a rule. But Jesus never said anything of the sort. In fact, he always talked about his death. Now, these 
men are not badly taught. The fact is they're blind. And that's a problem, so you'd think, given that Jesus is leaving a living of them behind to explain the gospel to the world when he's gone. But that is until you read verse 34. Again, when we realize that they're actually kept in the dark. That God, for some reason, is sustaining their blindness. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. But he talked about it all the time. Whether openly or through parables. And then he sat with them to explain the parables in ways that he didn't with others. They just didn't see. But its meaning was hidden from them. I mentioned that Titania's blindness was caused by radiation from the sun, but the disciples' blindness is caused by God, and we might find that surprising. We might say, well, why does he teach them if he keeps them from understanding? What's the point? That's like my maths teacher teaching me algebra and wiping my memory afterwards. I think that actually happened. And the simple answer, though, is that the time has not yet come for them to see and understand. In God's plan, it was better for them to hear these things and to mull them over, be left in their confusion until a point later when they would truly see and truly understand. In fact, their lack of understanding is actually part of the sufferings that Scripture predicted for the Messiah himself, confused by his arrest and more so by his death. These are the men who deserted him afraid for their lives, just as the scriptures foretold. But Jesus wouldn't always keep them in the dark. In Luke 24, at the very end of this gospel, the risen Christ leads his disciples in a Bible study. He said to them in verses 44 to 45, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's another way of referring to the writings. Sounds all very familiar. Verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He took away the blindness. Like the Himalayan doctor removing the cataracts, Jesus opened the eyes of his disciples to see and to understand at just the right point according to his infinite and perfect wisdom. And the impact was felt and is being felt worldwide. Now, if you're a believer here, let me ask you, uh, how did you become a Christian? How did you come to see Jesus for who he is? How did you come to understand your own sinful state and your need of a savior? Did we figure it out ourselves? Are we here technically smarter than 98% of the population who do not believe? No, of course not. Luke 10, says, no one knows who the son is except the father and no one knows who the father is except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So have your eyes been opened, friend? Ah, you've received a very, very blessed gift. Praise him. Praise him. He's taken away the spiritual cataracts and enabled us 
to see. Maybe we ask, well, how will people we know become Christians then? If this is the way things work, is it going to be by the right arguments, by the right persuasions? Yeah, of course it is. These are means by which God helps us to share the gospel with people. We read the Bible with them. We persuade. We convince. We definitely want to discourage people from leaving their brains at the door in order to come to Christ. It's a very well in, faith is a very well-informed step. But unless God opens blind eyes, people remain blind and under judgment. So this is why we must pray and ask God to do so, knowing he loves to. Maybe you're here tonight and you would say, yeah, I actually do not believe that I'm a sinner. Uh, maybe, maybe you say, I don't believe that somebody had to die for me in order for me to get life. I'm not sure I believe in this one called Jesus. I want to ask you, how is your eyesight? How is your spiritual eyesight? These are passages which encourage you to see the death and resurrection of Jesus, not merely as historical events, but the centerpiece in all things. And he makes what you believe about this the single determining factor in what happens when you die. It is either heaven or hell according to scripture. My encouragement for you, friend, is to keep reading, keep coming, keep listening, keep praying, even asking God to open your eyes. Because if you see what God enables people to see, your whole life is transformed. And until you see the death of Jesus as the centerpiece and your greatest joy, you're like Tatini taking uncertain steps with arthritic feet along rocky Himalayan paths of this world. And the worldview you lean on is worse than her stick. There's no support. Listen, Jesus loves to open blind eyes and sends his spirit into the world already to piggyback us to him. So look to him and be saved. Indeed, just as the blind man did in this second scene. This is point two. Jesus' death and resurrection are necessary. And as we see from this miracle in verses 35 to 43, Jesus has the power to help us see. Now, what does this man do in this scene? First thing we see him do is that he cries out for mercy. That's what we should do. Cry out for mercy like the blind man did. We're introduced to him in verses 35 and 36. He's blind, unable to see. He's begging, uh, unable to work because of his blindness. And in simple terms, we recount the story. He hears a crowd bigger than usual at this time of Passover. People were, plenty of people were probably making their way up to Jerusalem at that point. But the crowd seems to be bigger than usual, no doubt, bustling by, and he's asking, what's going on? In verse 37, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, he must have heard about Jesus. Uh, maybe he heard him teach on another occasion or just heard others talk about him. And news of one who's healing hundreds and feeding thousands spreads. 
Indeed, there is a swirling hope, as that Palm Sunday will show us, that Jesus might be the Messiah. And that's why the blind man calls out. And notice with me what he calls Jesus and specifically what he asks for. So he seems to know who Jesus is. He calls him the son of David in verse 38. Notice, not Jesus of Nazareth, as the person in the crowd explains, but Jesus, son of David. He understands more about this passing Jesus than the people who are there and are seeing with their eyes. He understands more than the crowd. David, of course, was one of Israel's greatest kings. He's most well known for being the man with a heart like God's and the slayer of Goliath, who, you know, he fights on behalf of his people and wins a victory for them. But it's not really what David did that gets Jesus this title. It's actually a promise that David received from God himself. You can read about that later when you go home. Look up 2 Samuel 7, where we find God promising David uh, a promise on the level of the one given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. It is a massively significant passage in our Bibles. Now, David was promised by God in that passage, 2 Samuel 7, that he would have a forever throne and a forever king would sit on it. It was a throne and a rule that would never, ever end. But it wasn't David's own kids that this happened to because they were, loads of David's kids afterwards were either thumbs up or thumbs down kings. Most of them were thumbs down kings, actually. And the monarchy in Israel over many years just kind of imploded. And yet there was one who was promised who would come, who would be of David's line, who would be that forever king. It was a promise of a Messiah, the anointed one, one who'd rule his people justly, doing what is right, one whose rule would bring healing, undoing things that are wrong. And Luke already identified Jesus this way for us way back in chapter one. So we're already switched on to this. When the angel said to Mary, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. 2 Samuel 7 was in view. And anyone who had eyes to see would have been rubbing their hands at the prospect of this Messiah. But the blind man was absolutely spot on. Physically blind, but with 20-20 vision, spiritually speaking. He saw what others, including the disciples, in their apprenticeship could not, that Jesus is the one who was promised. When you think about it, why else would he actually call out the way he does? He, I want you to see this, he is absolutely hollering to get Jesus' attention. Called is the translator's choice here in the NIV, but, and it's fine, but Luke actually uses a word in the original Greek uh, that describes elsewhere the preaching of John the Baptist in Luke 3, which was a heralding, okay? Uh, he also uses the very same word to call out here to describe what's called often the cry of dereliction, that cry of Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not a quiet, polite kind of cry. That's a hollering wail of dereliction and devastation. 
And then the third way that it's used in the rest of the New Testament is to, to describe the shrieking of demons who were driven out, like in Acts chapter 8, verse 7. So this isn't a polite, excuse me, Jesus, over here, if I might have your attention just for a second, I'm sorry, I know you're really busy, Some, it's none of that polite nonsense. This blind man calling on Jesus, son of David, have mercy, is absolutely hollering like a mad shrieking demon, okay? He is calling out, begging to meet Jesus. That's why people are telling him to shush. He's making a scene, but he won't be. And you can understand why. If you know your Bible, if you know the Old Testament, if the son of David is about to walk by, and this could be the only chance that you have to meet him. Indeed, for him, the Messiah was foretold, even as Jesus reminded us in Luke chapter 4, is the one who, with his coming, would not only proclaim freedom for the prisoners, according to the prophets, but also recovery of sight for the blind. So this man is probably thinking, I'm going to meet the Messiah, and I've got the best chance I've got to recover my sight. So he not only knows who Jesus is, he then knows what he needs. You see what he begs for? He doesn't beg at first for recovery of sight. Jesus, son of David, verse 38, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. What is mercy? You got a good, quick definition in your mind for it. What is mercy? How would you answer that question if somebody asked you? Well, mercy is what you plead when you know you deserve the opposite. Mercy is what you plead when you have nothing in yourself to offer. Mercy is what you plead when you see the hopelessness of your condition and no merit in yourself to claim. Mercy is what you plead when you're convicted of, by the deservedness of your judgment. Mercy is what the tax collector in Luke 18 begged of God and because of that went home right with God. That's what this man cries out for. So his first request is not, help me see, but have mercy on me. He saw his own need and praise God, God loves to extend it. He is abundantly merciful. He not only loves to give us the things that we don't deserve, that's grace. He loves not giving us what we do deserve. We deserve judgment. The withholding of that is his mercy. Such is his love. And Jesus proves it. In verses 39 to 43, Jesus stops his tracks. He opens blind eyes. When Jesus stops, he invites the blind man to say what he wants out loud. He wants him to articulate it. And the blind man then responds, verse 41, by saying, Lord, I want to see. Now, he calls him Lord. Important. This is surprising, though. To cry out for mercy, then to ask for sight, not forgiveness. At first seemed odd to me. I sat and labored over that for ages, actually. But Jesus' response to the man helps us see what's going on. So he not only, Jesus not only invites the blind man to say what he wants out loud, Jesus then declares the blind man's faith out loud. Verse 42, Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. 
So do you see what Jesus did? He reveals that the blind man's request is tied to the, his faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. He helps us see that the blind man's request is appropriate in the year of the Lord's favor when, as I said, the good news is proclaimed to the poor and sight is recovered in the blind. He believed Christ was the Messiah and essentially prayed, making a request that honored Jesus as Lord and did not doubt that God could grant it, that Jesus could grant it, and grant it he did. Verse 43, Jesus opened the blind man's eyes. Immediately, verse 43, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. Jesus, uh, Jesus, Tatini needed a good two days of recovery before the bandages came off. And even when the bandages came off, she squinted, marveled at seeing the nose of her doctor. And she thanked him. And she, she didn't worship him. She thanked him. She did a little dance. But how much greater would it have been for this blind man who, at the word of Jesus, to instantaneously have light flood his darkened eyes, supercharge those sleepy retinas, rods and cones all of a sudden realize, well, I've got some work to do. Then to have such holy information surging along his optical nerves, registering in his brain that not only can he see, but he's looking right at the face of the Messiah. That's incredible. Like, I was almost in tears watching this wee Tatini get her bandages taken off and dance about and touch the guy's nose and all that. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see that man receive his sight in that moment? It must have been absolutely incredible. And then to watch this man worship Jesus, and rightly so, because only God can open blind eyes. There is not one instance of the blind being healed in Scripture until Jesus came. Do you know that? You don't find that kind of healing miracle in the Old Testament. It's as if God just kept this miracle of sight until the point when Jesus arrives on the scene to help us see him for who he is. Indeed, this is the final miracle, it seems, before, that he performs before his death. Oh, he not only worshipped him, of course, this blind man, he followed him. Which is Bible talk for living the, the Christian life as a, a disciple, a learner, a worshipper. And wow, what those eyes would see in the two weeks that followed. Goodness. The same Lord whose eyes looked into his would be scorned and spat on, paraded and pierced, cursed and crushed to death but only by his own decree, all according to plan. And this same Lord whose heart embraced the blind man's would rise again, vindicated and victorious forever, commissioning disciples to go and make more. Even in the book of Acts, saying to the apostle Paul, I am sending you to the Gentiles I'm sending you to open their eyes. Well, let's wrap this up. How does this apply to us today? How does this apply to us if we uh, 
are believers already? Well, there are three quick things. One, if you see God for who he is, and the necessity of his death and resurrection, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, then praise him. As I said at the end of point one, I'm happy to reiterate it again in point two, a miracle has happened. A kindness has been shown to you. You've been delivered from God's just judgment, not because you figured it out, because he is, but because he is abundant in his mercy. Two, beware the kind of life that can give you spiritual cataracts. 2 Peter 1 verses 8 and 9 says that we can't just presume on our sight now. There is a way that we can become, as 2 Peter 1 says, nearsighted and blind. Make it difficult for us to see again. It says if we don't make every effort to add to our faith the godly virtues that Jesus wants to form in us, we can become nearsighted and blind, forgetting we've been cleansed from past sin. So seeing clearly is actually crucial to living in a way that's godly. So let's keep in our prayers the request to be those who see and understand and live in the light of the revelation that we've been given. Take care not to make light of salvation or play fast and loose with sin to the extent that lives look no different to those who are blind and still under God's judgment. Thirdly, realize that God sends people to open blind eyes. What he did with the Apostle Paul, he did with us. God is still in the business of granting sight to those whose eyes are darkened. 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us not, not only that Satan is the, is the one at work to blind the minds of the unbeliever, but that God is at work to lift the veil, to uncover the face and open the eyes so that nothing prevents them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Show them him. Luke 24, as we'll get to it in a few months, he is, reminds us that Jesus has chosen to do this work of opening blind eyes through us, through believers proclaiming the gospel, through churches equipping their members for the task, and through starting new ones in places where it's needed. But maybe you're here tonight again, you're not a Christian. Let me say to you in closing that this story of the blind man is for you, in a sense, a visual aid. He helps you see who Jesus is and what coming to him involves. Remember what he did. He came on the basis of his need. If, if Jesus was to ask you the question he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? What would be top of your list? What would be the first thing to say? If forgive me or give me eternal life or something like that isn't number one, then we'd love to help you see why that should be. Indeed, we've got a copy of Mark's gospel down at the connect corner here or a little booklet called Two Ways to Live, which outlines some of the stuff I'm talking about just now. We'd love to give you one of those away for free. Do come and just grab one after the service. But this man also tells you what you should do when you feel like it's time to see. He cried out for what Jesus loves to give, mercy instead of judgment. And when he receives it, he worships 
and follows him. That's why he is a model for you, a visual aid to show you what you can do. And our prayer is that we might be able to help you see him and worship him and follow him as you ought. Let's bow our heads and let's take a moment in the quietness just to pray our own prayers of response to whatever way God has been speaking to you and then we will stand and sing. Our Father, we thank you for opening our eyes, for giving us the light of the knowledge of your glory through the revelation of your word and your son, that he is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God, the son of man, who died for our sin and was raised to life three days later, just as he predicted, just as you had planned, that we who believe in him might have eyes to see and salvation to sing about. Lord, grant that we may reflect on this passage and apply it in our daily lives, not just today, but throughout this week, that we might be those who help one another and encourage one another to see your glory and indeed to help those who are blinded by their sin to see you for who you are. Open blind eyes in our city and beyond through the proclamation, our proclamation of your son. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and sing our closing song about the mercy that we've just been reflecting on. Let's stand and sing his mercy. Please.